Welcome to the Can't Make This Up History Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin. Harry Houdini. Nearly a century after his death, he remains a household name that is synonymous with magic. In fact, Houdini has even become a verb in our common vernacular, meaning to vanish or escape a difficult situation quickly. Today, I am joined by best-selling author Joe Posnanski to discuss his new book, The Life and Afterlife of Harry Houdini, which looks at the remarkable career of the world's most recognizable magician and tries to untangle some of the myths surrounding Houdini's life that have even baffled some of his many biographers over the years. Joe is an award-winning sports journalist and best-selling author whose prior biography on Joe Paterno reached number one on the New York Times bestseller list. In our conversation, Joe and I discuss how an immigrant named Eric Weiss transformed himself into a legend named Harry Houdini, how he pushed the envelope of danger to become the world's leading escape artist, and what continued to drive Houdini even at the height of his fame and success. If you enjoy today's episode, consider heading over to Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever you listen to your podcasts and leave a review for the show. It would be greatly appreciated. And if you would like to support and help produce the show, head on over to patreon.com slash cmtu history. The You Can't Make This Up History Podcast. Bringing you strange but true things from the past. It's not the average history that you learned in school. We're bringing you the heroes and bringing you the fools. And stories that are just too crazy to believe. The stranger. Hi, Joe. Welcome to the Can't Make This Up History Podcast. Thank you. It's great being here. Oh, very glad to have you. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, I understand that you have a uh, long background as a sports journalist. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. I've been a sports journalist, I guess, we're, we're a little more than 30 years now, which is uh, a bit staggering and, and deflating, to me, honestly. But... Um, <laughs> But yeah, I've uh, I, I began in newspapers and and was a sports writer for many years um, at the Kansas City Star, among other among other newspapers, and then I uh, sort of went uh, went national, I guess, and and was a senior writer at Sports Illustrated, uh, at NBC Sports, and uh, and other places, and now I'm a, a senior writer for the Athletics. So uh, so yeah, it's been. Uh, been an interesting life uh, as a sports writer traveling all around the world. I'm sure. Very interesting career. Um, so I'm going to ask you a question. I'm going to lift it straight out of your book. Uh, why Houdini? <laughs> uh, Houdini doesn't doesn't scream sports or athletics. No, no, he doesn't. Although, you know, as a sports writer, of course, I, I, I found ways to, to make a couple of connections. But you're right. It was... Uh, Something very, very different for me, um, but it it built out of uh, a little bit of a sports uh, thought, which was I, I'm fascinated by the idea of wonder and and what it is, uh, how we get more of it, uh, and and how wonder sort of reflects our own time. I think it's it's much more difficult 
uh, I think in today's world to to feel wonder. You know, I, uh, one of the early thoughts I had uh, when when I was thinking about what my next book was going to be was uh, was the story of Babe Ruth, and uh, it's a story that's been written many times. But what interested me about Babe Ruth was that he he did uh, just just inspire this this sense of awe, this larger than life feeling uh, about uh, himself and 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 it's something that has lasted you know for for all these years and people still still think of Babe Ruth as this this legend and larger than life figure and and I wanted to write about that because I think it's harder now it's harder to feel that way about about athletes about entertainers about politicians about about everybody and and I wanted a, a vehicle to to tell that story about wonder and I thought there's no better vehicle than than the story of of Harry Houdini. I mean, here's a here's a vaudeville performer, you know, a, a guy who would perform on on the same stage as, you know, the 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 bearded lady and 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 things like that and and he he, you know, all he did was he got out of handcuffs and chains and jails and you know, and it got more elaborate as the years went on, but but here it is a hundred years almost after his death and he's still every day. He's every there every day. I, I started a, a Google news alert uh, to tell me anytime Houdini's name was mentioned. I started that when I first started writing the book more than three years ago. And every single day uh, since I started writing the book, I have gotten an alert about Harry Houdini's name being used in some form or another in a newspaper or a magazine uh, or, or a, a blog or, or whatever the case may be every single day around the world uh, and, and usually many, many times in, in a single day, uh, he's still there and he's still around. And so that idea, that story of why it is that Harry Houdini has lasted through the years, um, that's really what captured me and, and inspired me to write the book. Well, and, and the book, as, as I think is appropriately named, The Life and Afterlife of Harry Houdini. And you, and you talk a lot about how that, uh, his ghost, you call it in the book, lives on today. Um, yeah. you, you start out with the with this exchange that, that I really like. You set the tone for the book. There's this exchange between Houdini and the heavyweight boxer at the time, Jess Willard. Uh, yes. Can you tell us about that? Yes. So it's uh, it's in California. It's in 1915. Houdini is already at uh, his peak uh, of fame. And Jess Willard had just won the heavyweight championship of the world. And, and it was a it was an, an enormous worldwide event because he had beaten uh, the African-American Jack Johnson and so many. You know, it, it had been it had been this the sort of task, particularly in America, uh, of, of white supremacists and 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 the like uh, to finally have another white heavyweight champion. And Jess Willard was that champion. So he was he was more famous than Houdini. He was he was at the at the uh, his extraordinary height of fame. And and he went to a Houdini show and Houdini uh, in the middle of the show asked for volunteers and he had been told that Jess Willard was in the crowd and he asked Jess Willard to come down and and Jess Willard wouldn't. He refused to come down and and there was a little bit of back and forth between them. And then at some point, Houdini said, please come down and 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 Jess Willard said, ah, go on with the show. You're you're a you're a fake. You're a four flusher. Um and and Houdini was really taken aback. Uh, Houdini did not lack for ego or or a sense of self, and he was 
furious. And and so I begin the book with that story because there he is at the end shouting up at Jess Willard. Let me tell you this, Jess Willard. Uh, I will be Houdini when you are no longer heavyweight champion. I will be Houdini when people have forgotten that you were ever heavyweight champion. And to me, that was that was such a powerful and, and striking scene for, for any number of reasons. It's a wonderful scene on its own. But but because I think that's reflected exactly what Houdini's ambitions were, were to be immortal, to be timeless, to be remembered forever. Um, that's how he lived his life. That's why he lived the way that he did. And sure enough, nope. I, if you went up to most people and said, who is Jess Willard, they wouldn't know. But if you said to them who Harry Houdini is, they would all know. Yeah, he, he was exactly right. Incredible. It's really it's it's astonishing to think that that this guy who who was really doing, you know, he was he was he was a he was base entertainment. Right. I mean, he was he would come to your town and hang upside down from from, from a straitjacket and, and and that this guy believed in his heart that his greatness would be celebrated a hundred years down the road. And then it is being celebrated a hundred years later. And that's, I, I just find that to be so amazing and so astonishing. And so, uh, and it and says so much about who he was, not only as a, as a performer, which obviously was a great performer, but as a promoter and as someone who had this unique ability, I think, to capture uh, the American imagination. All right. So your book is, um, the most recent in a long line of biographies on Houdini. Uh, but this reads unlike any uh, biography I've ever read before. Um, wh- why is it somewhat of a fool's errand to even attempt uh, to write a biography of him? Yeah, thank you for saying that, because it, it, you, you're right. There, it, is, it is a daunting task to write a book uh, about a guy who has had so many books written about him. I mean, there have been so many books and movies and television shows and songs and comic books and everything else about Harry Houdini. So so I didn't need this to be different. But yeah, part of it is that it is a fool's errand because I don't think there's ever been anyone who was so successful at sort of mythologizing his own life. Uh, here's a guy that... that you know, as I write about in the book, he always told people that he was born in Appleton, Wisconsin. That was his, you know, he would sign his his autographs, he would sign and he would put Appleton, Wisconsin next to his name. He spent his entire life telling people and promoting the fact that he was a full-blooded American born in Appleton, Wisconsin. And he wasn't. He was actually born in Budapest and did not move to Appleton until he was four years old. But he was so successful at convincing everyone that he was born in Appleton, Wisconsin, that 50 years after his death, um, a magic association actually created a whole committee just to determine where Harry Houdini was born. 50 years after he died, there was still, the mystery was still there. And so his life is filled with things like that, where it's like every single story that has ever been told about Harry Houdini uh, has an alternate version, has uh, as an opposite version. I mean, he 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 covered he covered up Eric Weiss, who was who was that was his name before he became Houdini. He covered up Eric Weiss's life in such a way that you know biographers have been trying for years and years to find out who Harry Houdini really was. 
and to some success, but not to complete success. And so it was great for me to write a whole different kind of biography where I could embrace the myth and, and I wasn't trying to to get at, you know, I mean, hopefully you get at who Harry Houdini was, but I wasn't trying to separate fact from fiction in the same way that I think a, a hard biographer might have tried. It leads to fun reading because you, you read the story and then you say, well, it could have also <laughs> happened this way. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I kind of wanted to treat his life a little bit like one of his escapes where where you don't really know. You know, you're never really on full footing with, with Houdini. It's like, oh, here's a great story. Eh, is it true? Probably not. Maybe. <laughs> could be. Probably not. And then and then there's another story. And is it true? Well, there are more evidence for this story than there was for the other. But, you know, and, and everything was driven by him. I think that's what's so compelling about him is that he, you know, he, he had a certain genius for for creating exactly the kind of character that would enthrall people. You know, part of the reason he said he was born in Appleton, Wisconsin is because a big part of his act, particularly in Europe and 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 Australia and 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 other parts of the world, which you know, he was famous everywhere, um, was that he was this scrappy American, right? That he was the, the he was the the uh, you know, the scrappy young hungry American uh, who could get out of anything. And no matter what you tried to put him into, he was going to escape and nothing could keep this, this American prisoner. And, uh, you know, and it was the American story at that time. So, so it all worked together. It was very important to him to, to have this, this life. And he wasn't allowed about to allow, you know, facts to, to interfere with, uh, with, with the story he was trying to tell. All right. So, how did uh, Eric, or how do we think Eric Weiss uh, first got involved in magic, and how did he become Harry Houdini? Yeah, we have a pretty good sense of this one because because there were other people involved, and and they told uh, similar, if not exactly the same story. Harry Houdini was was raised, you know, he grew up in, in Appleton for for four years, and he moved to Milwaukee, uh, ran away from home, and then moved to New York. And it was a, it was a, you know, his father was a, a rabbi who couldn't find work. There was never enough money. They were, they were very, very poor. And, and he grew up in a very hard scrabble life. And when he was 16 years old, his father died. And that was about the time that he really fell in love with magic. And he fell in love because he read a book by the father of magic, uh, Robert Udon. Uh, and he read the the autobiography of Robert Houdin, and and was so deeply moved by it that he wanted to become a magician. And and it's possible that there was magic in you know in in his younger life, but this part we know to be true. Uh, and he he had a friend. He was working in a neckwear factory, and he had a friend who was equally moved by the book and also wanted to become a magician. And they decided to call themselves the Houdini Brothers by adding an I to the end of Robert Houdin's last name. They thought it was pronounced Houdin because it's spelled that way. So they just added an I to the end of it. And they became the Houdini brothers. And and Eric Weiss, people called him Airy for short for Eric. He was Harry Houdini and his partner uh was uh with you know went with his first two initials. And and they were the Houdini brothers and they worked together for a couple of months until until uh, his partner left. And then another partner came in, was part of the Houdini brothers. Then his own brother 
was part of the Houdini brothers and uh, and that's how it all began. So as as we know, he eventually becomes his own act. Um, how did he he finally make it big? Um, did he catch a break or, or kind of manufacture his own break? A little bit of both. Um, I would say mostly he caught a break. He was ready to give it up. Uh, so he did it and and he really went on his own after his partner became his his wife, Bess. Bess was his partner uh, for years. And they tried everything, not just magic. They tried comedy. They tried uh, musical theater. They tried everything to try to make it on the stage. And, and it he was a failure. And, and they were they were failing badly to the point where he was ready to give it up. In 1898, he, he offered to sell all of his secrets in a, in a little magazine he put out. He, he put a price on all of his secrets. And nobody was interested. Nobody knew who he was. Nobody tried to buy any of his secrets. And he was truly on the brink of giving it up when he ran into the absolute luckiest break of his of his life. Uh, a a vaudeville um, a person who ran vaudeville theaters named Martin Beck. Uh, he he was head of of a, of a certain theater. Uh, group out in the Orpheum tour is what they called it because all the theaters were named Orpheum, and uh, and he saw Houdini, and liked him, and invited Houdini to dinner where he was very harsh and frank with him, and he said to him, "Look, the magic you're doing," because he was at that point still trying to do card tricks and 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 you know bird you know birds coming out of handkerchiefs, typical magic stage magic. And he said, the magic you're doing is, is no good. Nobody cares. It, everybody's doing it. And you're, you're no better at it than anybody else. But this escape thing that you do, getting out of these handcuffs, getting out of jails, that's really interesting. And if you'll focus on that, I'll put you in one of my theaters. And and Houdini you know, was, was desperate for any kind of break. And that's when he really started to focus on the on the escape things and on hang on handcuffs. And at that point, so, so that's the lucky break. And then you say, make your own break at that point. He took off and, and he did it purely out of, you know, ingenious little, uh, escapes that he came up with by working promotion, like very few ever had before. And very few have since, to be honest. Um, he created a name for himself. He made his name synonymous with escape and he really did it through extraordinary hard work and an extraordinary sort of a, a, a real, you know, a real brilliance for figuring out exactly what it is that people wanted to see on the stage. Yeah. You, you, you write about, he would, um, you know, kind of challenge people to handcuff him to see if he could get out. Yeah. And he, he got a lot of newspaper coverage out of that, um, that he may or may not have been somewhat involved with himself. <laughs> I think he was. I think you can take a pretty good guess that he was involved. Uh, he wrote many, many, many of the stories uh, that appeared uh, by his name, particularly in those early years when uh, when he really didn't have another way. So he would he would go to a jail cell. He would show up in your town, and this is the young Harry Houdini, still probably 25, 26 years old. He would show up in your town. He would go to the to the police station and he would challenge them. I can get out of your jail and I'll do it naked. I'll do it stripped naked. That was the that was a big Houdini thing. He, and he was saying it was it was because he he wanted to prove that he wasn't carrying a key or or a pick or anything like that. But of course there was you know there was the whole salaciousness of it and all of that that he that he certainly was aware of. But he would go to your town. 
and he'd say, uh, I'm going to escape from your jail. I'm going to escape from your best handcuffs. And then he'd write the story himself as if he was the reporter and he would give it to newspapers and they would run it. And it was a different time uh, in that way. But but he they would run it or he would he would offer, you know, to take the local reporter out to dinner and, and drinks and wine and dine them and then get them to come out and cover his show or something like that. So so there was a lot of that going on. And then he was also becoming more famous. He was his name was beginning to spread and and uh, and it happened fairly quickly. So uh, between his own sort of genius for 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 getting his name in newspapers and uh, and and the fact that he was doing interesting things, like you say, he was taking on challenges. He was that was his show in, in those days. Was come to me with anything, come to me with a box, come to me with a bag, come to me with chains, come to me with with uh, with any sort of you know jail you know trap you can think of, and I'll get out. And and he did, and he always did get out. And so. Uh, so it was an interesting act, and it certainly captured uh, uh, the imagination not only of the press but of the public. And it does work out for him um, so much so that that today we would associate him with the king, being the king of magic. Um, but people at the time, a lot of his peers in the magician community, uh, didn't really regard him as a magician. Um, how well did he relate to the magic community? Um. It's it's interesting because because you're exactly right. You're 100 percent right. And and the truth is that that lasts till today. There are many magicians today who do not regard Houdini as a magician at all, much less a, a great magician. Um, his his relationship he was he was very prominent in the magic community. So everybody knew him and he knew everybody. And uh, I try to to explain this in the book. He, he made a lot of enemies and he made a lot of friends and they were usually the same people. And he was he was a handful and a very difficult guy to deal with, but he was also generous in his own ways and and someone who who um, you know loved he loved magic. I mean he loved it. He he spent his life studying magic and gathering magic uh, you know magical effects and 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 talking to old magicians. That was one of his favorite things in the world to do. He he truly loved magic and I think a lot of people in the magic community appreciated that because he was he was magic's biggest name in so many ways and and so they loved that he was out front promoting the art but they did not regard him as a particularly good magician at all and and you know the great card magicians of the time thought he was a hack when it came to card magic uh the great stage magicians of the time would often talk about how what houdini did which was get out of you know, whatever the case may be, the water torture cell or the milk can or straight jackets or, or whatever the case may be, that that wasn't magic in the same way that what they were doing was magic. What they were doing was taking you into sort of this dream world where you could see a princess float or you could see, you know, coins appear out of thin air or whatever the case may be. And and what Houdini was doing was was just a challenge he was he was saying i can get i can wiggle my way out of any scenario so so there was a real clash and and it's it's interesting to me because it's a clash that i think lasts till today i i one thing that i found fascinating is that almost every magician i talk to all to all, maybe i don't even know if i need to say almost just about every magician i talk to uh 
started becoming a magician because, at least in part, of Harry Houdini. He was the first person they'd heard of. He was the first magician they knew about. They read a book about him. They saw a story about him. They saw a movie about him. And that's how they got interested in magic. So he's prominent in their lives. But then the more they learn about Houdini and the magic he did, the less impressed they are by the actual magic. Because he did do, you know, he made an elephant disappear and he would walk through a wall. I mean, he did he did do some fairly famous uh, magical uh, things. But mostly he was a, an escape artist. He was a daredevil. He was uh, someone like that. And and so it's it's very interesting to see people try to figure out, OK, exactly how do I feel about this guy? On the one hand, he brought me into magic and made, you know, this is the reason I'm living this life that I'm living. And on the other hand, I don't have that much respect for him as a magician itself. So it, it all adds to the, the big picture of who Harry Houdini was. So he's primarily an escape artist. And uh, this really encouraged people to try to, you know, find a way to contain him. How did he respond to those challenges? Well, he loved them for as long as he could sort of physically do it. I mean, at, at some point, it becomes pretty exhausting to just keep getting out of things. And and the public, at some point later in his life, kind of lost interest in that part of it. And, and that's when he moved on to, to other things such as, uh, you know, uh, uh, going up against uh, uh, mediums and, 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 you know, unmasking them and, and doing uh, different kinds of magical shows. But... I think that, you know, this brings back a little bit to my world of sports. I think Houdini saw himself in many ways like an athlete, you know, like a like a heavyweight champion boxer where people would come in and they would challenge. And, you know, you're trying to challenge the champion and the champion, you know, would find ways to win, you know, no matter what the case may be. So so people would come at him with every kind of contraption you can imagine to try to to try to trap him to try to finally find something he couldn't escape from and it took a lot of effort a lot of uh ingenuity a lot of just just hard work you know just time for him to figure out how to keep escaping from all of these different things he would his one rule was he wanted 24 hours with the contraption whatever it was so they would bring a box to him or a mailbag to him or you know he once was sewn up inside of a football i mean there were many different ways they tried to to trap him and he and his assistants would would go through those different things and figure out you know undetectable ways to get out of these these uh, these different uh, these different things. And he, you know, he did that for years, you know, a decade or more where he would take on challenges night after night after night after night. And uh, it really is extraordinary. And and he did it. It was very local. I mean, this was all, you know, now you could just do one escape and, and get it on Instagram and you can, you know, millions of people can see it. I mean, he was doing this for, you know, hundreds of people, dozens of people at, at a time. And, and, uh, and so it was, it was something that, you know, he built and built and built and built, but he always found a way. That was his thing. He always found a way. And he of course becomes, uh, extraordinarily famous because of this. Uh, can you, um, give us some perspective on his celebrity and um, how does this affect his personal life? How does this affect his marriage with Bess? Well, his his celebrity became such th there's there's a fascinating uh, part of of what it was like for somebody like Harry Houdini, who never stopped chasing fame, like fame 
was was his motivation from the day he started to the day he died. It was it was it was at the very forefront of of what he was chasing. So so it was difficult because he, he could become and did become one of the most famous people in the world and it was still not enough and he still wanted more he needed more it only took one person not knowing who he was to set him off into a into a deep depression you know i mean he was he was constantly in fear of of losing fame he was constantly in fear that the the audience was going to move on without him that was his big Thing you can see it in his diary entries, where he would talk about you know during those mm-hmm. those rare low moments in his in his publicity. Um, you know there was uh, a time that he went to St. Louis in the in the early 1910s, and and they they couldn't sell out, they couldn't come close. And he wrote in the diary, "Is this the end of Houdini? Is is this is this gone?" And and it was a constant fear for him. And so that was the life that he chose. And and you know best. His wife, to some degree, chose the same life. She was never as comfortable as him on the road, never as comfortable as him in the in the spotlight. But she was a show person herself, and and she loved the stage. Something that you could see after he died. She she very much stayed in the public eye with various uh, various things that she did. Um, but she was she was troubled, and and that was another difficult part. She she had issues with alcohol and, and, and drugs perhaps. And, and, and there were, there was, she went through some, some various health issues. And so it was a, it was a difficult relationship uh, on both sides, you know, one having to deal with, with this, with this manic, you know, uh, performer who needed always to be in front of the audience and the other dealing with the, with, with his wife who, who had her own uh, demons that she was dealing with. So, it was it was difficult, but but from all we can see, there was great there was great love between them. And Houdini was was this very quirky and odd, uh, but sweet romantic who would write her little love notes almost every day to the point where years after he died, she would still find these little notes that he had written to her about how much he loved her. So it's a it's a it's a very interesting relationship. And that, yeah, and not a bad idea for. <laughs> For a lot no, of husbands, no, we can all take a little bit of that. <laughs> um, so he was undoubtedly the you know greatest uh, magician of that time. Um, but you talk a little, you devote a couple chapters um, or sections to the great magician of our time, David Copperfield. Uh, how do the two compare and contrast? It's very interesting. I mean, certainly their acts are very, very different. I mean, they're they're not comparable at all. I mean, David Copperfield's not a, never really been an escape artist. I mean, he's done a couple of escapes here and there, but but he was always a pure stage illusionist and 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 you know brilliant at creating his own kind of wonder. Right? He he's the one that that you know one day he just made a whole thing about being able to fly and he and he and he flew and uh, made the Statue of Liberty you know, disappear and, and, uh, made a jet disappear and all these other things that he did. So very, very different in, in form and in style to Houdini, but very similar in other ways, which is why it was so important to me to, to spend time with him and why I dedicated, as you mentioned, a full, there's a full section specifically on David Copperfield. And, and the reason for me is that I think they're driven by s- somewhat the same thing, not, 
I think there's fame involved, you know, as I mentioned with Houdini, but there's something else. You know, David Copperfield is a billionaire. David Copperfield owns seven islands. I mean, he's he's a guy who could do whatever he wanted at this point in his life and, and really for the last 20 years could do whatever he wanted. But he does 350 shows a year. You know, in Las Vegas, 350 shows, including three shows a day during Christmas week, which is mind blowing to me. Why? Why do it? Why? Why work that hard? Why? What? What is it that drives someone to to be? You know, he can't become more famous. He can't really become richer. I mean, what? What is it that that drives someone like that? And I think there's something about being in front of the audience. It's where you feel at home. And I think that's. That's what drove Houdini too, and that's what made him so fascinating to me. I think they're built and driven in the same way. You know, they both changed their name. They both, you know, were young uh, Jewish, uh, you know, people looking to strive. And and even though their their styles are so different, uh, I think there's a real deep connection between them to the point where David Copperfield owns the world's largest collection of Houdini memorabilia and and uh, and actual you know Houdini props and and all, he is the one that has the water torture cell and and uh, many of Houdini's uh, handcuffs and chains and and so on and so on so I think that there is a very very deep connection and and one of the thoughts I had in my mind was if I could sort of figure out what it is that drove drives David Copperfield then I could sort of figure out a little bit more what drove Harry Houdini. And I think that works. I think that, I think I came to the conclusion after, after getting to, to be lucky enough to spend some time with David. Um, I think that there were real insights into uh, what it is that drove Harry Houdini. Yeah. I, I enjoyed reading uh, that perspective. Yeah. And it, and it really is interesting. And, and, you know, it, it tells you there's something about this uh, magic that is, an art, you know, that's real. It's a real art form. And, and, you know, I think at one point David said something like, you know, people don't ask why Bruce Springsteen still performs or why, uh, you know, why Yo-Yo Ma still performs or whatever, because they love it and they love, they love what they're doing and they love the audience, you know, being able to do it. It's a passion. And, and I do think that, that that's a big part of what drives David Copperfield. And I think it's a big part of what drove Harry Houdini. I mean, there's, there, there certainly was this, this need to be seen and this need to be famous, but there was also this need to connect more and more deeply with, with this thing that he loved so much, which was, which is definitely magic. So over the course of his career, he does start to up the ante in terms of danger in his act. Uh, why does he start to do that? I think I think that that direct absolutely directly relates to what we're talking about, which was Houdini's fear of being left behind. Uh, you know, there was there was always a sense of you know a little bit of danger when it came to handcuffs and jails. You know, there but the danger was. That he would what not be able to get out. He'd be embarrassed. He would be trapped for a little longer than he wanted. Whatever. The, nobody ever really thought like he was gonna, you know, he was gonna be stuck in those handcuffs for the rest of his life or anything. But there was a little bit of a sense of danger. Um, but he really sensed that uh, people were beginning to lose interest and that the audiences were no longer as taken by his escapes. And he quite quite smartly when it came to his business thought 
what we need is danger. And and it began really for him with the milk can, which was a milk can filled with water. He would step inside the milk can, water would spill out onto the to the stage, then they would pour more water on his head and then put the, the cover on and lock it. And now you could imagine Houdini inside drowning, right? Now there's this real fear and, and it was locked. And there would be someone nearby with an axe to to break it open in case in case, you know, it it, it got too, you know, it went too far. And people he would ask people to hold their breath for as long as they could so they could sense what it was like inside the inside the milk can. And it was a sensation. And and he knew it. And then very shortly after that, he did the water torture cell, which is his most famous, I think, um, stage escape. And this one, it was basically the same thing, except for two, two elements. One, instead of going into the milk can the way he did, which was right side up, he went in upside down into the water torture cell, added a whole other element. And the second thing is that the water torture cell had glass. So you could actually see him inside, you know, underwater, you know, bubbles coming out of his mouth, whatever the case may be. And it just took the imagination to a whole other level. So it's not now, an illusion. He's actually in there and you can see he's, that. He's in there, exactly. Now, it's interesting when you think back now and, and see how magic is done, nobody actually ever saw him escape because the curtain would come around the water torture cell. So he was doing it behind a curtain. But they could, before the curtain closed, they saw him inside underwater hanging upside down in a locked cell. So, so there was that, that, that image was burned into the memories and imaginations of everybody who was watching. And it was, it was powerful. People would be in the audience would, would be in tears. They'd be crying before he would come out after, you know, three, four, five minutes, uh, completely soaked, but, but perfectly healthy. And, and they would, cry and scream and and applaud and and it was it was you know pure it was pure tension relieved when they saw him when they saw him come free and and so that's what he did so for the rest of his career he would jump off of bridges into into water and he would he would do all kinds of things that where death was was very much lingering in the air and and uh, and that's what brought him back and took him back to to uh, heights that he had previously known and and took him even higher than he'd ever been. Now I I know from the book that you're not the biggest fan of this particular topic, but one <laughs> um, uh, little known part of his career is uh, and you mentioned it very briefly earlier is he goes up against uh, mediums. Uh, could you explain for the audience, uh, just to give them some context, what was the spiritualist movement and um, what are the myths surrounding Houdini's um, supposed personal vendetta against mediums? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it is interesting. And, and I write in the book that I prefer the magic um, uh, because I do. And, and, and uh, you know, there have been many books written specifically about uh, the spiritualism, and I didn't feel like I could add a whole lot in that category. But I do write about it at at some length. Uh, the spiritualist movement began in the in the mid nineteenth century, uh, and it's really uh, it really focused in on. Uh, it started with some with with this young family, these two young girls in uh, upstate New York. They they were living in a haunted house, and and they figured out a way to speak to the to the ghost, the spirit of that haunted house, and the, and the spirit would answer with these certain uh, 
knocks. There would be like these knocking sound. So they they began to train the the, the spirit so the spirit could tell you like if you asked how old one of the girls was, the spirit would would knock 12 times. And later they just started developing codes so they could answer so the spirit can answer yes or no. And when this started happening, people could hear the knocks. And so when this started happening, people started coming from all around, including quite a few famous people um, of the time. This is pre-Civil War. Uh, but they started coming around and 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 trying to fully understand what was happening and and were completely taken by this story. And and it's uh you know, we, we now know that one of the sisters was actually making those knocking sounds probably by uh, by sort of moving her ankle so it cracked, uh, basically. Um, but at the time, it was quite a sensation. And it, it started this this whole movement of trying to speak out, speak to the to the to the dead and, and reaching, you know, into the past. And it, it, it very closely uh, aligns with magic because later on one of the, you know, there were these brothers who, who their idea of the spiritualism movement was they would travel around and they would go into a box and they would have people tie them up in this box. And, and then they would, um, they would put, you know, instruments in the box and they would close the door. And as soon as the door would close, they would, uh, you'd hear music. You'd hear like this, this very, creepy music and then suddenly the music would stop they would open the door and the two brothers were still tied up in the chair so the idea being that they they were not the ones playing the music that the music was being played by the dead and and they had a a long run of of success and that was really more magic than than spiritualism but they didn't sell it as magic they you know they didn't sell it as their ability to escape from ropes it was that they were tied up and, and these spirits were coming in. So all of this leads up. This is the world that Houdini grew up in. Um, Houdini did some some of his own uh, spiritualist work when he was young uh, and was looking for to make a dime. He, he had nothing. So so he was fascinated by this. So then you lead to to how he became because he became the number one enemy of mediums. And this was right after uh, and during World War One when the spiritualist movement really spiked up as people wanted to to reach out to to those who had died in the war and and Houdini became the biggest enemy he 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 called it all fraudulent and started to expose specific people actual mediums by name and he would he would go and he would challenge them to prove to him that they could really do it and he learned all of their tricks all of their secrets and there were many, many feuds that he would have with them to the point where he would get actual death threats. I mean, it was a very, very uh, passionate and and uh, big part of Houdini's life. Uh, and it was, you know, at the end of his life, he was still uh, that was what he was doing. He was doing a three part show. The first part of the show was um, magic. The second part were escapes. And the third part was was this this. Uh, this unveiling and unmasking um, of mediums, and so, so it was a very big part of his life. the The myths that go around it, there are many, but the the biggest myth is that he became angry at mediums because he believed in them. And after his mother died, his mother was the closest person to him. And after his mother died, uh, the wife of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who wrote Sherlock Holmes, um, did a séance 
for Houdini and said that she was able to speak to Houdini's mother. And she wrote a long, like three page letter that supposedly was Houdini's mother. But she made a couple of mistakes, including the fact that she put a cross at the top of it. And of course, Houdini's mother was the wife of a rabbi. So that that mm-hmm. didn't that didn't stand very well with Houdini. And also she wrote it in English and Houdini's mother had only spoken German to her, to him all of her life. Oops. So, yeah, a couple of small blunders there. And there. And so the story is that Houdini at that point became so angry that he decided to to create a whole vendetta against the medium community. It's not really true. Houdini's fascination with mediums uh, goes back, you know, to, as I mentioned, even his younger days when he when he actually was briefly a medium himself uh, and hated it and absolutely hated it. Felt like he was taking advantage of, of people and he, he felt terrible about it. So uh, so it's a lifelong thing and it wasn't any one thing. But but it is also true that Houdini's fascination with death and the ability to, to defeat death, the ability to come back after death, it was something that he was fascinated by. And so so there are a lot of mixed you know, emotions that Houdini had when it came to this kind of stuff. So over the course of the book, his, his escapes and his, his um, illusions and, and his death-defying tricks, uh, you made a conscious decision. You don't reveal any of his methods. Uh, why is that? Well, it was important to me that this book be about the original idea, which was this idea of wonder, this idea of inspiring wonder. And I feel like wonder is is in many cases not knowing. And I think that's part of part of why it's so difficult to inspire wonder now. It's we're not we're not comfortable with not knowing. We're not comfortable with stopping short of of the real answer. I mean, we we have so many tools to to find the real answer. Uh, you know, we can just Google it. You know, I mean, there's no there's no real room uh, for that kind of for that kind of wonder. And and with Houdini, the secrets are almost all not everyone, because there is one that I write about at great length in the book. But almost all of Houdini's secrets are out there to be to be found. Um, people have written many books about Houdini's secrets. Uh, there have been there was just recently a television show that sort of dived into Houdini secrets and how he did things. So, you know, it's, it's, it's really a YouTube click away for the most part, trying to figure it out. And I, I realized that wasn't my role. That wasn't my task, my job. And I wouldn't want to do it anyway. I, I think that there's something I, I, I think I quote Max Maven, um, who is a, a wonderful magician. And somebody was asking him about, revealing, you know, because that's the thing magicians really, really dislike the most is people revealing their secrets. And Max Maven made this wonderful point where he said, you know, it's not only, it's not that it's going to ruin the magician or whatever it, it, it's, it won't. People are not, you know, they're, they're, that's not how it works, but it's rude. It's really rude to do that. You know, it's, it's like, it's like going to a comedy show and, and, barking out the punchline before the comedian says it. I mean, it's, it's, it's really rude and it, and it, 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 it sort of goes against the spirit of, of what the art is. And so for me, it was very important 
to to not only you know not only not reveal the secrets but to to maintain a little bit of the mystery of of what Houdini did so that you could see it the way people then saw it you could see it the way that I think people still think about it today there there are a couple of times in the book I should say where I do take a stab at at revealing something it's not the trick it's not the it's not the the secret you you can't it's not a how-to book. You're not going to be able to to look at it and 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 know how to do it based on it. But there are a couple of secrets of, that Houdini had that I think are so fascinating and tell so much about who he was as a person that I do talk about those in the book. But the idea of of how he did it to me that's that's half the fun. Yeah, I'm I'm with you. I'm one of those people that that doesn't want to know. I mean, I I know there's a way that the, the magician do, uh, does sure. the trick and I'm content with that. I <laughs> yeah. don't need to know what that is. I think that's right. I, I think that's how I feel. You know, I talk in the, in the book about this, this great thing that Penn and Teller do where they, it, it, it's too uh, complicated to go into entirely, but essentially there's a, they do a, an escape where they tell you, if you don't want to know how it's done, close your eyes. And, and when you open your eyes, you'll be amazed. But if you do want to know how it's done, keep your eyes open and you'll see how it's done. And most people, of course, keep their eyes open because they want to know how it's done. And their belief is, and, and I agree with them, the people who close their eyes enjoy it more. They're, they're the ones, because once you see how it's done, it might, it might blow your mind. It might look at it and go, oh, that's really cool. That's interesting. But you'll forget it. You know, at that point, it's like, okay, whatever it's, it's, you move on. But, but if you don't know how it done, it's done, I think it stays with you in a whole different way. And I think it's a big reason why Houdini still is, is out there because for all of the books that have been written about his secrets and all of the shows and, and, and efforts to, to explain how you get out of this or that, the other, most people don't really want to know. They really want to think of Houdini as this magical uh, figure and and I think that's uh, I think that's actually really cool. I, I I think that's pretty great. So the last thing uh, I wanted to ask you um, is uh, he's inspired so much wonder in in people over the you know last century. Uh, you in the book you uh, arrange it in in these conversations you've had with various people who've dedicated their lives to. Um, pursuing Houdini's legacy. I, I, I guess you could call them Houdini enthusiasts, but I don't think that quite, uh, quite nails it down. Uh, what can you tell us about these interesting people that you've encountered in this book? They're fascinating, and and it was such a, such an interesting and cool world to, to sort of wander into because you know when I first started, I, I'm a sports writer, I didn't know very much about any of this. And, and suddenly you meet a guy like John Cox, who is um, this screenwriter out in California, or was a screenwriter in Los Angeles, um, who has been fascinated by Houdini almost since the day he was born. And, and he runs a website called Wild About Harry, and every day, often twice a day, uh, sometimes more than that, he will write – something about Houdini and, and it's, you know, it's, it's often, sometimes it's, it's a little bit of history about Houdini, something we didn't know, a story, 
But most of the time, it's something current about Houdini, something about a new show that's coming out or a book that's coming out or, or um, you know, or a show that, that that's just about to break open on, on you know, in, in the West End in London or on Broadway or something like that. And, I, you know, I got to spend a lot of time with John. And it's just fascinating to see someone who is that passionate about you know, anything, but, but in this case about uh, a figure who is, has been gone for, for almost a century. And, and I think that sort of, you know, I think what he's chasing and, and what I think a lot of these people in the book that I talked to, because he's certainly not the only one, I think what they're chasing is that feeling of wonder. And I think that they're chasing that because it's, because as mentioned, it's so much harder now. It's so much harder to feel that way now. And you, you know, when it comes to magic, particularly, you know, the best magicians are probably the ones that you see on television doing America's Got Talent or, or Fool Me or something. You go, you watch them perform, you're amazed. And then you can go on YouTube the next day and 15 different people tell you how they did it. And it's not the same. And, and, you know, in sports, I see it that all the time. I, I see athletes who, who you see them do something and you're just totally just overwhelmed with, with this sense of joy and, and, and this powerful awe that you feel about them. And then you see the same play 500 times on replay. And then the next week comes and then somebody says something about him on Twitter or, or, you know, she, she goes on Instagram and whatever the case may be, something breaks in and, and it's harder to feel that complete sense of awe that, that, that I think used to be easier to get at. So, um, so it's really was fun to be around those people who, who didn't hide from it. They were, they were influenced by Houdini. They 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 wanted to know more. They want to care more, and and they don't. It doesn't bother them that that others don't feel that way, or that others might think they're weird or quirky or whatever, uh, because they enjoy it so much. And and I think that's that was really cool. It was really cool to be around those kinds of people. So we covered a lot today, and there is uh, you know a lot more in your book. Uh, um, that we could talk about, but if someone wants to uh, inspire a little wonder in themselves and, and pick up a copy of your book and read more about the life of Harry Houdini, uh, where can they go? Uh, they should be able to go anywhere. It's good. The book is the life and afterlife of Harry Houdini. It's on uh, all of the uh, Amazons, Barnes and Nobles, uh, indie bound, everything online. It should be in your local bookstore. Um, should be pretty easy to find, I hope. And, uh, and it was, you know, not that this is specific to the, to the book itself, but it was so much fun to, to do. Uh, it was such a different experience for me as a writer to write this kind of book. You mentioned it not being a typical biography. I think it is very different. And, uh, and it was, difficult to write that way because it, it is, I was going for something a little bit different than, than a biography, a little bit different than a, a history, a cultural history. It, it, it's meant to be something a little bit more, I hope. And, uh, and so I think, I think people will like it. I, I, I hope that, uh, they find it at, uh, a bookstore near them. Well, Joe, uh, this was a lot of fun. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to come and talk to us today. Oh, thank you. This was a blast for me. 
Well, thank you for listening to today's episode. I hope you learned something new and valuable about Harry Houdini. I know I certainly did. If you're interested in learning more about this topic and reading Joe's book, you will find a link to The Life and Afterlife of Harry Houdini down in the description of this episode in your podcast app. The Can't Make This Up History podcast will return in two weeks where we will air my interview with author Julia Flynn Seiler about her book, The White Devil's Daughters, The Women Who Fought Slavery in San Francisco's Chinatown. This is our second Patrons Pick episode where the show's Patreon patrons decided who should come on the program and it will be our last episode of 2019. See you then.